I made the mistake of two Bibles. This is a, a normal Bible. This is a holy preaching Bible. Um, and if you thought I brought both up by mistake, you'd be mistaken. I just had to have something to say to start this thing. Um, if you could turn to Romans 5, 1 to 11, if you've got a Bible, I'm not going to put it on the screen because that confuses me. Um, I'll give you a moment to get there. Um, that's enough <laughs> therefore since we've been justified by faith with peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God more than that we rejoice in our suffering knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, whom has been given to us. For while we are still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we are enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Our passage starts with... Uh, the word therefore, so I'm afraid we're going to look right back uh, to see why it's there, because a word like therefore means probably um, there's something before. Uh, but also, um, we've got to follow that up and say, well, therefore what? So, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, as we look back, we're looking to see what he means by justified by faith. And um, I guess that may make some of your hearts sink and think, well, we've done this all before. Uh, justify faith is the basics of Christianity. Well, if you're thinking that, you're wrong. And um, justify, uh, being justified by faith is the start and the end of the gospel. It's the whole message. If we get past that, we've gone too far. And so Paul starts at the beginning of his book in Romans chapter 1. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believe, for Jew first and also for Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is from faith, from the first to the last. For as it is written by the prophet, the righteous shall live by faith. Uh, so Paul says here, we're saved by faith, not by works. That's right at the beginning of his letter. And he quotes uh, from a prophet called Habakkuk, who uh, lived in the Old Testament times under the law. And he says, the righteous shall live by faith. So if you think that this idea of being justified, made right with God through faith, is something that comes from the New Testament, from Jesus onwards... Paul says you're wrong because that's what Habakkuk said hundreds of years before Jesus. Um, 
the first few chapters of Romans goes something like this. Romans 1, 18 to 23 tells us how God's wrath is poured out against unrighteousness and ungodliness. Romans 2 explains God's judgment and how his judgment is just. Romans 3 explains how righteous and holy God is compared to how wicked and unrighteous we are. Uh, An example of this, Paul quotes, and these are all quotes from the Old Testament, from the Jewish Bible. He says, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, no, not even one. So Paul says, even the Old Testament writers knew that no one did good. No one was worthy of God. And it's all looking fairly dire. But then at the end of chapter 3, Paul writes this. Now a righteousness from God has been made known apart from the law, although the prophets bear witness to it. For righteousness from God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption of Christ Jesus. So we come to Romans 4, and uh, Paul gives an example of someone from the very beginning of the Old Testament, from the very beginning of the Bible, a man called Abraham, who is the great father of the Jews. He's the one they look to and say, he's our father, He's he's the best Jew. He's the one who kept the law best. He's the one who's our example. And Paul says, uh, well, actually, if you look back at it, it's Genesis uh, 15, verse 6. It says, uh, Abraham believed God, and that was counted to him as righteousness. And Romans 4 is this whole argument of, well, was um, Abraham righteous by works, or was he righteous by faith? And actually, if you read that argument, Paul proves that he was called righteous before he had done anything before he had kept any of God's law, before God's law had even been given to him, God called him righteous. And so actually Paul comes to the conclusion that anything we do to be right with God, apart from faith, is worthless, is rubbish. He says, there is no one righteous, no one, not one, no one who understands or seeks God, they've all become worthless. That's the best that our religion and righteousness can do, apart from faith. And that means all the good and nice people you know, if they don't have faith, um, that doesn't get them anywhere. I don't know uh, whether you look at uh, religious leaders, uh, maybe a good pastor, maybe, um, I don't know, a pope or some... uh, religious leader um, and you think they're a good person well if it's apart from faith it's nothing before God so when we come to Romans 5 Paul starts with this therefore uh, there can be no righteousness apart from faith so therefore we have been justified made right with God by faith and that brings us into peace with God. But we notice it's through someone. Uh, and you could 
take for list from Romans 3, there is no one righteous, no, not one. And you could flip it round because uh, when God looks at the world, he has made us righteous through someone. And that person had to be the one righteous person, the one who pleased God, the one who followed God's way and who is worth everything. And that's God's view of Jesus and it's him who makes us righteous. And so we have peace with God through Jesus. And through Jesus we rejoice in a hope of glory. You see, we were sinners, God's enemies. There was no peace between us and God, but God made us his sons. You see that there? It says, through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So what does that mean that we have peace and we were against God? Well, uh, Paul elsewhere uh, calls himself the worst of sinners and um, I think what he's saying is, um, I'll start that again. Um, <laughs> we were God's enemies. We were all God's enemies. Actually, Paul uh, calls himself the worst of sinners. And what he's saying is, if you think you are an enemy of God, he says, I was for one who spent my time murdering God's children, Christians. And that actually means... If you are here today and you don't think you have peace with God, uh, Paul says, well, I think I probably had less peace. Um, I am the worst of sinners. And I think some of us would think we'd give him a run for his money. But um, if God can save us, or if God can save me standing before you, if God can save Paul, who, if you trusted in Jesus, would spend his time trying to kill you... um, God can save you no matter what you've done. And so you have peace with God. And that's important because as we saw in the first four chapters, God's wrath has been poured out against all sin and all ungodliness in the world. That is that God is righteous and God is holy. And there is a standard to which God demands that we all live. And actually... If you want to see the standard, it is that that there should be one who lives and is righteous and doesn't sin in any way and who pleases God in how they live, who keeps all God's law, follows God's direction and God's uh, calling and is also worthy of God. And none of us can do that. So we need peace by God and that peace means that see in verse uh, 2 Paul says we stand in this grace and I troubled had hours of trouble over what does this grace mean because it doesn't quite fit there but eventually I look back and uh, reading chapter 4 it suddenly jumped out of me at me but uh, in chapter 4, 13 to 17, if you turn there, um, it says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring, 
was that he would be the heir of the world, and it did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it was the adherents of the law, that's the people who obey the law, who are to be the heirs, uh, that's the people who receive God's um, blessing, if it's those who obey the law receive God's blessing, then faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings nothing but wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring, as to all of Abraham's offspring, and Abraham's offspring of those who are saved by faith and not by works. So salvation is a free gift. This being made righteous by faith is a free gift. And it's this grace. It's not by works. Because if there was any type of work in you being saved, if you had to do anything to be made right with God, you would fail. All Adam had to do to be right with God was not eat a tree. Well, not eat the fruit of a tree. Um, (laughs) Not eat a tree would be more of a challenge. Uh, and he failed that. So if there was any law, that's something we would fail. But it doesn't depend on a law. It doesn't depend on us keeping any of God's commandments except faith in Jesus. And Paul says that's so it can rest on something called grace. And grace is a word meaning a free gift. Something given to us that we don't deserve, we don't earn. And that's for a reason, you see. It says in verse 16 of chapter 4, that's why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed. And it's that word guaranteed that I wanted to think about was that because it's grace, because it's a gift from God, it depends on God, not on us. And so our salvation, our hope, rests on God. It doesn't rest on God, uh, on us, because it's a gift from him. It's not something we have earned. Um, and Jesus says, he says, none the Father has given me, I will let go. And that truth that Jesus won't let you go is what that it is guaranteed means. If he has given you this gift by faith, then it depends on him. And the question is, it's not, can I lose my salvation? It's, can Jesus drop me? And no, he can't. And so we move on to the bulk of the text, which is uh, from verse 3 to about 6-ish. Um, which is, um, more than that, we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given us. Um, First, I've got to say some things about what he means by suffering here. I think... We've got to say first that I think suffering is 
it's not quite the norm of life, but it's normal in life because of sin that we suffer. So when you suffer, it's not that there's something against you that's more than is natural. It's not that God has forgotten you or turned his back on you. Suffering is the norm of life. In fact, Paul later on at the end of the book says, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. He's expecting that in the church, there are some people rejoicing and others mourning at the same time. And so he says, well, you've got to learn to rejoice and to mourn at the same time. That's normal. I think here probably he is talking about the suffering of persecution also because as we saw last week the church was under persecution at this time and people were even being put to death for what they believed. But I think here it does mean both. I think if you look at chapter 8 you can see it both talks about um, it says um, if you want to be glorified with Christ, that is Jesus, if you want to be glorified with Jesus, you must also suffer with him. And that's the suffering of being a Christian. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you must pick up your cross and follow me. And being a Christian does bring suffering. But Jesus says, blessed are those who suffer and are persecuted for my sake. But it could also mean, uh, Romans 8 also talks about how the whole creation groans as in the pains of childbirth, there's something wrong with the world and it's groaning, it's in pain. And there's suffering in the world and that's because the world's not been renewed yet. God hasn't brought for new creation yet. And so there are two types of suffering. There's suffering that is unique to Christians and there's normal suffering. And I think it means both here. So we should expect to suffer. But Paul says we rejoice in that. So how do we rejoice? Well, first, um, you see it here in verses 3 to 4. It's what suffering produces. Suffering produces character, um, endurance, and hope. Um, But second, it also is at this time that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, we see. And that's why the hope doesn't put us to shame. So first, let's look at endurance, character, and hope. Um, What is the hope first? I think that's probably helpful to think about. Well, in verse 2, it says, um, through him, that's through Jesus, we've also obtained access into this grace in which we now stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. It's in the hope of the glory of God. And what's that in the hope of the glory of God mean? Um, I think we're going to get to it later on. But in short, it's the hope of being glorified like God in glory in heaven where God is and where we'll see him face to face. That is the hope of the glory of God. It's the hope of being united with God in heaven. So couldn't we have that without suffering? (laughs) Why does he say we rejoice in suffering? Uh, That's a bit odd. Um, Surely you could have hope, endurance, 
and character without the suffering, that would be better. Well, I don't know if you've ever watched um, sort of uh, vehicle repair programs on uh, TV where they take an old steam engine or car and they, it's all rusted up and it doesn't work uh, and they make it work again. And they're great fun to watch. But one of the processes in that is you get this old piece of machinery that's covered in rust and never going to work and you get what's called a sand blaster. And they're really cool because they shoot bits of sand at sort of three, four hundred miles an hour towards this uh, metal, and it just knocks off all the rust, the grime, the dirt. And it goes along, and it's sort of rusty, and then shiny metal is shown forth afterwards, and you're able to oil it up, and it all works perfectly, as it should have. And I think what Paul's seen here to an extent, is that suffering is like that sandblaster on our lives. It, it's not that it's knocking away for fi- the actual thing that is um, preventing us from enjoying that hope or learning that endurance. It's not the actual thing it takes away. But when you suffer, you realise actually that there is more to life. There's that new earth where there's no suffering. It's not that if you've suffered loss, it's not that that was because of any idolatry or anything like that. That's not what I'm saying. But in that pain, God is teaching you, look at me. Look to the hope of heaven. Look to the hope of glory. Um, Hold these things lightly and hold on to me. And it's not punishment, it's discipline. God says in, uh, the writer of Hebrews says, um, he says that God disciplines those he loves. Hallelujah. <laughs> he does that. She's right. Yeah. He does that so we'll be more, more like him, more like Jesus. And Jesus was disciplined, and we're following in his footsteps to be more like him. So what does it mean to respond and grow in endurance, character, and hope? What is endurance? Endurance is that character that says, I'm going to keep going through this. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep going and keep going. (laughs) And keep going. Even when I think I should stop, I'm going to keep going. Um, a silly example of this and, uh, would be um, you don't get good at any sort of um, physical exercise or sport unless you keep going or start going. <laughs> 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 Mr. Burrows. <laughs> Mr. Leslie. <laughs> I would take as example for this a cycle ride I once did to um, Preston and it stands in my mind as one of the worst days of my life. Um, You cycled to Preston? uh, Yeah, well, I cycled 
to near Liverpool and got the train under there because <laughs> I couldn't work out that bit. <laughs> yeah, um, but I got out of the tra- train north of Liverpool and something you have to understand about the plains north of Liverpool is they don't half pick up a wind and that was against me. Um, and so you stop pedalling and your bike stops and it's grim um, and the rain didn't help. I think the worst bit was I was five miles from Preston, and if you know where Preston is, it's about 40 miles cycling from here. Um, and you sort of think, well, I've got five miles to go. I was sat in a puddle in a um, parking space at Tesco's, on the floor, um, <laughs> eating chocolate. Um, <laughs> I'm thinking to myself, I'll turn around, I'll go home. And you're five miles off, but... That's what you want to do. You're near the goal. You're nearly through. (coughs) But it takes endurance from there to carry on. And that endurance builds a character. If you can endure through that, it actually means the next ride, you think, this is nothing. I sat in Tesco's car park. Um... And that's what it means, endurance builds character. But neither of those are anything without hope. And there's no point enduring, there's no point having character to something if you're just doing it for a hopeless cause. I mean, if I wasn't cycling, uh, it was a friend of my, Andrew, uh, my colleague's photo exhibition. Uh, and I really wanted to see what his work was like. Um, and if it hadn't been for that, I'd have just turned around. Uh, there's no point being miserable. Uh, unless there's a hope. And what does Paul say? Uh, Paul says in... I've not put a verse down, so I can't tell you. But I assure you, this is from Romans. Uh, <laughs> and it's someone's sermon, so I'm stealing it. Um, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory. That's for hope, the glory that is to be revealed in us. For creation waits in eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. We are the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage from corruption to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation is groaning together as in pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, for redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved... Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait with patience. It's that hope, it's the hope of heaven, it's the hope of glory, it's the hope of seeing God, the new body, the new creation, and all that entails. It's that hope that keeps us going when we have to endure. And it's endurance and character that will build that hope. A second reason to rejoice in our sufferings is because 
in that hope we rejoice because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And this was another one that troubled me deeply because you read the commentaries and you get a million different um, sort of readings of how we should take this. Um, And I'm not really going to go into those. Um, I think here we need... I'm not going to take it as a sort of charismatic uh, text about being filled with the Spirit so much because he says... God's spirit who has been given to us. And later on he does say, um, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So if you're a Christian, you have God's spirit. Whether you're living a spirit-filled life or not. And I think in suffering, that's important to know. That God's spirit is with you. And so I'm going to take it from that viewpoint, that that's what he's talking about. And that's how, in suffering, we know our hope is secure, because we know God with us. Um, And it says here, he's pouring his love into our hearts. And during uh, the worship uh, of a psalm came to me, and I know it's um, the psalm that everyone knows, but it was just one line of Psalm 23. Um, and Psalm 23 is great, the Lord is my shepherd psalm. Um, but towards the end, it says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's what it's talking about, the Spirit being poured into our lives. Actually, it's stronger than that in the original. Um, It reads better, shall follow me. But actually, um, David wrote it as, shall pursue me. Uh, God's goodness and God's mercy aren't just following me. Um, They're chasing me. I could try and get away from them but they're chasing me. I could try and run. I could feel like um, I'm being dragged away from God's goodness, God's mercy. Everything's going wrong, but they're chasing. And that's what it means. God's love is poured. It actually says he pours uh, oil on my head, my cup overflows in that psalm. Um, And um, it's probably worth you reading that later. Um, but God's love is poured into our lives through the Spirit. And it's that love, actually, that gives us strength uh, to endure. And it's that love that gives us the character to grow more like Jesus. And it's God's Spirit pouring his love into you that gives you that hope, that longing for heaven because you want more of that. Um, And more than that, um, we're secure. And so if we read on verses uh, 6 to 11, (coughs) for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for us, beyond godly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though for a 
Perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were yet enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. Much more now shall we be reconciled, that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. We're secure. God loved us while we were enemies, and he went for the cross uh, for us. Um, There's an interesting um, and slightly confusing part to this, which is uh, this verse 7. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. And I'm going to steal an illustration from my childhood I heard in a sermon uh, and it's a wonder I remember it. Um, I don't remember the sermon. Uh, but this difference between a righteous person and a good person, uh, you see this, say, in the queues at Tesco's for the till. Um, a righteous person is queuing and the cashier is swiping stuff through. And a righteous person notices that, uh, I don't know, the beans have gone through the till and it's not beeped. And you're thinking, ooh, free beans. Uh, but then the righteous person thinks, well, actually, I should pay for those. So they say, excuse me, you didn't scan these. That's a righteous person. That's not a good person. They've not done anything over being righteous. Um, a good person is the person behind you in the queue. Um, who, when you come to pay, you're fumbling through your wallet and you realise, actually, um, I had £40 for this shop and it's come to 45 And you're thinking, you're going through and thinking, what can I put back? And the person behind goes, how far are you over? And you say, I'm £5. Uh, and they say, oh, that's all right. And they pass you the note. That's a good person. Um, that's not... They've not done a righteous deed because a righteous deed is doing the right thing. They've done something good. I've seen a lot of blank faces here. (laughs) (laughs) Um, A good deed is something where you do someone good. A righteous deed is where you do the right thing. Uh, That might help. Yeah. Now the point of that is that we were ri- neither righteous nor good. Uh, we were sinners. We were evil. We were the shoplifter. Um, in the story. Uh. And at that point, God decided, well, I will die for them. I'll die for the sinners, for shoplifters, the evil people who are against me, who have made themselves my enemies. And what's that made us? That's made us, in God's sight, for righteous and for good. Because it says, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
and what did he achieve by that? He made us godly. And so the argument here is, well then what will God not do for us now? If he did that for while we were his enemies, what won't he do now we're his sons and daughters? Actually, Paul explains something here that uh, I hope doesn't unsettle you too much. Uh, But he says, well, you're not actually yet saved. Um, He says, therefore, we have been justified by faith. Um, We're hoping uh, to be glorified. And glorified is the final section of our salvation. It's the final part of God's plan for saving us as his children. If you think you're glorified now, you're somewhat deluded. uh, (laughs) Because Jesus was glorified, and he was able to walk through walls. And um, when he appeared to people, they fell down and fainted. Um, And... (laughs) Behave. (laughs) <laughs> I've lost my train of thought now yeah I'm going to get a few awkward pause now got a stopwatch <laughs> <laughs> what Paul is saying is that we've not reached that hope yet did you know that while Jesus had an unglorified body while he had an earthly body he felt pain and he got tired. He also was tempted by sin. It says that he was tempted in every way we are. One of the great things about our new body and the new creation that we're looking forward to is that it will be like his. His body is referred to as the first fruits, the sort of example, this is what you're going to get. Um, And it's not tempted by sin. It's not hurt by pain. It doesn't get old. That's the wonderful truth, but you've not got there yet. And what Paul's saying here is, well, you've been justified. You've been made right with God. You have peace with God. He loves you. Of course he's going to do that for you. Your hope is secure you are going to be saved. You're going to see God in heaven with a glorified body, free from sin, free from age, free from all those things, free to enjoy him. And then he says something, and you'll notice this in the first verse and the last verse here. It says in verse 1, Therefore we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the last verse More than that, we also rejoice through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have reconciliation. Um, It's all through Jesus. It's all through what Jesus has done. If we look back at chapter 3 and verse uh, 21 to 26, it says, But now the righteousness of God has been made known apart from the law, Though the law and the prophets bear witness to it, for righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all whom believe. There's no distinction. 
for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption of Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to receive by faith. This is to show God's righteousness because in his uh, divine forbearance, he passed over the former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time and also that he might be for one who justifies, for one who has faith in Jesus. What Paul is saying is that we're justified through Jesus, but he's also explaining how. And we've got to look at a couple of the long words here. Uh, first is uh, that uh, it's through redemption that it's in Christ Jesus. And that's to say that Jesus had to buy us back. Uh, we're God en- God's enemies, and he had to um, pay for price that we owed God for our sin, and we couldn't pay it. He paid it. Um, and it's Jesus Christ who God put forward as a propitiation. Now, that's a longer word and more complex um, and I've heard many good and bad explanations of this. Uh, probably the best is, um, and it's not perfect, so don't um, think of this as the only thing, but um, if you imagine a tall building with a lightning conductor, um, what does the lightning conductor do? Um, well, if lightning hit that building, that building can't take it. Uh, that building's made of bricks and all sorts of flammable things. And um, if that building was hit by lightning, it would do disastrous damage. It would probably burn it to the ground. A lightning conductor um, is made of metal and it shrugs off um, lightning. It might even glow when it hits it, but it will take a thousand hits. Um, it can take the lightning, it can get rid of it. Um, And so Jesus, in that way, is our propitiation. The lightning conductor is for propitiation for the building. It takes what the building couldn't take. That is for punishment of God for our sin that was keeping us from God. And that's where the illustration goes down. Uh, because lightning just wants to hit stuff. Um, But Jesus takes the price for sin that we could not pay, and no one could pay. There's no one good enough to pay it. Actually, you might think, well, couldn't one of the angels pay it? Actually, they're not big enough to pay it. Um, The price we owe God for our sin, because we have sinned, against an infinite God is infinite. That's why if you choose to pay it yourself, um, God's uh, way for you to do that is in hell, which is forever, and is infinite sorrow and pain. And that's why that is, because you can't pay it off. It's a billion pound overdraft it's something you just can't there's no way you can get rid of it but Jesus being God and being man 
is for one who can pay it because he is infinite. He has no end and no beginning, as we heard. He's the only one who could pay the price for our sin. What does that mean? Well, how should you react to something like that? Um, It's a silly story, um, but I'm generally very untouched by these stories, but this one quite touched me. Uh, There was a... um, um, I think it was a radio article I heard. Um, Someone called into... uh, Radio 5, actually. Uh, I heard it on uh, the website. I didn't actually listen to Radio 5. <laughs> radio 4 is the only radio program. Um, Amen. Amen. <laughs> radio Two's right out. Radio 1. <laughs> yeah. I'm 22. Just brought up... Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, back to the point. This man called in, and I don't know what we'll call him. We'll call him Bob. Uh, he was in um, Tottenham driving his kids to school, and his car broke down on a busy roundabout. And he said, well, I couldn't um, guess out. It was so busy. And I was stuck there for 10 minutes. So you imagine a busy roundabout in London, 10 minutes. has probably 300 cars past him, and no one stopped. And then a car does stop, and out of it gets this hooded figure, walks up, and uh, pushes the car to safety. And as he comes to a window, the guy realises, this is a true story, it was David Beckham. And you think, (laughs) what? You did that for me? And the guy in the interview said, "Um, I rate rather a fool of myself. I mean, I've always admired the man as a footballer. When he, said, when he did that for me, I said, David, I love you. <laughs> <laughs> he pushed a man ten yards in a car. Jesus went from heaven to earth, and from the earth to the cross for you, and paid that huge price you couldn't pay for you. Are you just going to say, well, he's someone I admire. He's someone, he's a good guy. Um, Or are you going to say, Jesus, I love you? Because he deserves nothing less than our love and our devotion. Actually, he's our hope. Our hope of glory is our hope that we'll have these glorified bodies to worship him better we'll be nearer him, we won't be held back by sin, we'll see him face to face and our glorified bodies can take that. Um, Whenever anyone saw Jesus glorified, they fell on their face and in the Old Testament God said to Moses, well you can't see me, you'll die. Um, Actually in heaven we'll be able to look at God face to face and worship him. Mm. So don't read these passages. That's what Paul's saying by putting Jesus at the front and at the end of this passage. Don't read it without Jesus. Don't read it without thanking him for what he's done. That he bought it all. He paid for price. He's the one who's holding you in his hands and will see you safe to heaven. And so rejoice in your sufferings. 
knowing what they cause, what, that they'll bring you closer to him. Endure. Praise Jesus. And be filled with the Spirit. He'll give you the strength uh, to get through it. And he'll make you more like for Jesus you adore. And if none of this makes sense to you, if you think you earn your salvation by your works, repent of that. Even if it's just a little bit. If you think, Jesus did most of it and I do the rest. If you think, uh, Jesus made me right with God and I please God by how I live. No, repent of that. It's all through Jesus. Your righteousness before God, the fact that God loves you is all through Jesus. So repent of that. If we could sing now um, and praise Jesus for what he's done to us. Um, if you'd like to pray about any of that afterwards, you can catch me or Nigel or probably Dad or uh, Steve. Someone, grab someone. Uh, yeah, do that. <laughs>